right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI podcast. I am your host, Sam Charrington. Today, I'm joined by Jay Emery, Director of Technical Sales and Architecture at Microsoft Azure. Before we get into today's conversation, be sure to head over to Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review. Jay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. You spend a lot of your time working with organizations, startups, and and fast-growing organizations in particular that are building around large language models. And I'm excited to kind of pick your brain around what are some of the things that you're learning, that you're seeing them struggle with, that you're helping them with. Should be a a really interesting conversation, especially given how quickly this field is moving and uh, some of the cool things that people are doing. Absolutely. It buckle up. It is it's constantly changing week by week and sometimes hour by hour. It's fantastic. It is. Uh, and I, I guess I'll mention I don't necessarily often kind of talk about the things happening behind the screen or behind the veil or whatever. This is the second time we're having this conversation. We had a technical glitch. Doesn't happen very often, but it, it happened last time and the audio quality wasn't where we like it to be for the the conversations. And so we're having this one uh, again a, a a week and a half later, maybe. And you could almost say the world changed like two days ago, three days ago when OpenAI had their dev day. A lot of the things that we were talking about as maybe possible futures, like we actually heard about at at dev day, and we may touch on that. But before we jump into the conversation, I'd love to have you Can I introduce yourself to our audience, share a bit about your background and what you do at Microsoft? And I I think we have St. Louis in common. You spent a bunch of time there? We do. I uh, spent almost two decades working for Anheuser-Busch in various engineering and IT leadership roles. And funny to note, I actually spent like five or six years abroad in Europe doing various projects and and strategic initiatives. So finally brought me back here, California, where I joined Microsoft and have been with Microsoft for almost four years now. Like you mentioned earlier, uh, really partnering with digital natives and startups. The team really focuses on what we would consider strategic partnerships within the startup ecosystem. So we partner a lot with venture capital firms and some of their portfolio companies and finding ways that the Microsoft relationship can ultimately grow their total addressable market or make them more successful by getting them access to uh, some of our our enterprise customers. Is generative AI and the the Azure OpenAI products, is that you know, what takes up all of your time? Is that just one of the tools in a, a broader tool chest? It is. It's it's interesting, Sam. So it, now it is. I think that a year ago, two years ago, a big portion of what was attractive to startups was our partnership and our ability to kind of reach into the enterprise customer, the large Fortune 500, Fortune 1000. Lately, it's been everything AI, the advent of the large language model and Azure OpenAI and OpenAI has really just busted open the doors for opportunities for us to find ways to partner together. And and many times, some of the startups that weren't answering our calls are actually calling us directly. And so it's been a very refreshing and exciting time to to be be at Microsoft. Mm -hmm. That... uh... To call the the OpenAI partnership strategic seems like an understatement. It is. I I will say, and and I mean this with with all sincerity, I think the cultural change that Satya brought to Microsoft 
it's just been fantastic. And, and it's evident even in these partnership with OpenAI, where we were very likely developing our own large language model, but he was willing and able to lean in, notice when somebody is doing a better job or is more maybe ready to go to market much sooner and to ink that strategic partnership has just, you know, one done wonders, I'm sure, for OpenAI, but it's just really revolutionized Microsoft and ready to take us into the next century. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Microsoft historically has been very well positioned from a research perspective. You know, for a while, many of the best conversations I've had around NLP were folks at Microsoft that all had this like common root in having worked on Bing. Just a, a lot of expertise there, not to mention, you know, some of the achievements coming out of the Microsoft research. Yeah, and I think one of the things, obviously Azure OpenAI gets, or OpenAI gets kind of the lion's share of the press and attention, but there's even a bigger story around how it ties into maybe our our, um, cognitive services portfolio in general. So it's truly a one-stop shop. Azure OpenAI is obviously the kind of the crown jewel in it at this point, but we have some really capable products and services that can help enhance or, or aid in developing your own large language model or figuring out a ways to, to kind of integrate it in with your existing IDE. Mm-hmm. So try to characterize uh, for me the kind of maturity level, I guess, of the companies that you're working with. Are they all coming to you knowing all about LLMs and you know, having built products and trying to get some help optimizing, kind of putting the cherry on top, or are they earlier stage and needing help kind of getting started? Like, yeah, and I imagine that, you know, they come in different flavors, but like, how do you think about the folks that you work with and kind of where they are from a maturity and and knowledge perspective around LLMs? We benefit from getting to work with uh, startups and or what we would consider digital native organizations. I think that they have taken a more aggressive and maybe thought forward approach to large language models. I think if you look at a traditional enterprise customers, with rare exception, most don't have a large language model expert or maybe even an AI expert in staff uh, and rely pretty heavily on consulting firms and uh, external uh, service providers to bring that to bear. Most, if not all, of these digital natives have someone on staff that's familiar with it. And I think it's just the clairvoyance of knowing that's where the industry's going. And so what we tend to find with startups is they are ready to go feet first in. And, and a lot of times we're super early adopters. We, of course, have seen some shifts and trends with large language models probably the past year, year and a half. But by and large, the customers that we interact with are, are very thought forward. They're either figuring out how to integrate generative AI into their existing product or platform, or maybe they're actually developing their own and need to leverage some of the, the GPU capacity that we've fortunately been able to build out and, and share to our customers. Mm-hmm. So that having been said, what do they need you for? Like, what are the challenges that they're running into that cause your proverbial phone to phone line to ring or your teams to start blinging? Exactly. We kind of tend to see a lot of times there's this, I would say, misconception around security or data privacy. I think that with any new technology, the CISO's door is, you know, bell is ringing off the hook and there's a lot of concern, especially in the startup space. IP is their lifeline. 
And there's a lot of concern about IP leaking or being leveraged by a competitor. So one of the very first things we do is try to dispel any myths around their data or your data being used to train new model. And it's simply not the case. I think it was stories like that Samsung story continue to live on in people's minds. They do. It is. And so, you know, if you look back at at 3.5 Turbo, that model was trained up until I want to say it's like September 2021 data. And it was only leveraging openly available, thus in open AI, things like Wikipedia or publicly available novels or articles or books. And in essence, the way that the models work is there's data put into a prompt and then the model does its stuff and and brings back a response. And it's always done in memory. And after either your session terminates or you end your session, that memory is re-released to the system and, and is ready to bring on the next prompt and response. And so there's no point in time where that information that you're putting in is, is stored to disk and used to retrain. The one exception that I would call out is maybe our content moderation. I think one of the benefits of kind of having the power of Microsoft behind various models is around our content moderation. We, we take things very seriously. So we we purposely screen uh, both prompt and response for things like violence or hate speech or sexual content. When it's detected, it ac- it's actually stripped from the response. So you don't get that back. But then also it's stored where one of our human individuals can come and review it because there might be a a reason for the language, right? It might be, I love to use the example of you could go in and ask for the lyrics to a Nine Inch Nails song and it will not come back with all the language in the songs, but there might be a reason why you need that language. And so we also put in different places. You could bring your own content moderation. You don't need to, to use ours and we have options to kind of opt out of it. You have to go through some process to do that. But things like health data, PII, you know, it's really not acceptable to record anywhere. And so we can, you can opt out of of those things uh, through one of our internal processes. One of the things it sounds like early on folks will engage you with is just really understanding how privacy, security, those types of things work. And it sounds like that's like the C-suite folks trying to understand if they can even do this, like if it is within bounds, given whatever privacy framework that they have in place. Beyond that, I'm imagining, you know, engineers are running into kind of technical challenges focused on their various use cases. When you think about folks trying to implement a particular use case and trying to get the LLM to to do what they want, basically, you know, is that something that you get a lot of calls about? It is. You know, I'll paint with a broad brushstroke here, but people tend to, are getting better, I would say, at thinking maybe a little bit further out. You know, I think the initial gut response is, oh, I can create a great chatbot that leverages natural human language. But it's the companies that are really kind of thinking beyond that and and how are they going to integrate that or tailor it to their specific business or, or business processes. We see three main ways that our customers are able to leverage large language models to really drive that business impact. The first, and it's actually probably the most common, is with prompt engineering our prompt tuning, prompt chaining. I mean, it's really about putting in the right level of detail and information into the prompt, getting a response back, the customer getting more and more innovative, I would say, on how they can actually take the outputs of a prompt and actually feed that back into the prompt 
uh, of the next one. And that chaining or that tuning ultimately delivers a much more rich and robust answer. And we've got some first-party tools, and I'm sure there's open source tools as well that are available, but things like Prompt Flow, which it does a little bit with kind of like a graphical flow or workflow tool that can actually chain together different models. So you can pull up Hugging Face and use the output of a Hugging Face model as an input to 3.5 Turbo, or you can use Llama 2 and feed it into GPT-4. So there's a whole host of tools and capabilities that are available to the customers when they kind of buy into the to the ecosystem. And the other thing that is really interesting is they have this concept called prompt variance. And you can actually use AI to tweak your prompting questions in just tiny different ways that will actually, believe it or not, produce, you know, in some cases, dramatically different answers. And so you can actually go in and fine tune how the questions are being asked. You don't have to think of it. The AI can rephrase it for you. And so what we're finding is a lot of startups leverage that tool to make sure that they're getting the most out of their their prompts. And I love to use the example. We work, believe it or not, with a lot of ed tech companies. And I think of any industry, I think if you watched NBC Nightly News or, or you know, name your news network, you know, it, people were prognosticating the death of college and kids' education, and now everybody's going to be cheating. And, and I think what we found is the companies that kind of lean into the challenge and try to think about how do they embrace the technology versus fight it are really coming out with some some really cool examples and use cases. And so we spoke with one ed tech and the, the concept behind it was imagine you are a, a high school history teacher and you know, you've got your normal lesson plan and state mandated things that you have to teach your class. But imagine if you want to kind of pivot a little bit and maybe look at, uh, I don't know, Abraham Lincoln's early life. You can actually leverage these large language models to create an outline for you using prompt chaining. You can feed it back in. So you can have it create an outline, feed that outline back into the model to generate actual content or course material, and then also leverage that output to generate quizzes and answers. And ultimately, you can feed essays and responses back into the tool and it can grade it based on like a matrix of scoring that you can also feed the model. So it's, it's just a really brave new world and uh, have no doubt even places like education are going to look drastically different than what we've seen in the past. So that was prompt engineering. I forget the name of the company, but that sounds a lot like one of the examples that was shown at the OpenAI Dev Day in the keynote of a a company that was building, a, I forget if it was an assistant or a GPT, I think a GPT, but the example that they showed was a teacher going in asking for like a custom lesson plan or something. Yeah, it's amazing what we're going to be able to do and, and ultimately the impact on everybody from us down to our, our kids. It's a really, really fun time. And this prompt variance, is that a, a tool that is available? It is. So we have a product uh, as part of our cognitive services. It's called Azure Prompt Flow. And in essence, it's a graphical, you can chain together different modules. You can take the output of one open source model and feed it as an input to a next. And part of that is there, this, it's called variant. I think it's called prompt variance. And it will actually allow you to come up with maybe if you, if you have a prompt, tell me about Abraham Lincoln's early life. You can put in that into the prompt variant, and then it will generate up to 10 or more, set the value, different ways of asking that question. So Abraham Lincoln was important in his early life. Tell me about it. So it gives you a couple different or several different ways to ask the same question. And then believe it or not, there are differences in the outputs 
because it's so non-deterministic and some of the ways that you can ask those questions are. And then one of the challenges that I hear about all the time is, hey, we try all these prompts. You know, it's kind of like throwing spaghetti at a wall. The output's different. When we were doing old school machine learning, we built out these experiment management tools so we can kind of track our results and compare AUC for different hyperparameters, et cetera, et cetera. Like we'd kind of just figured that out. And now we're doing all this text stuff and evaluation is really hard. Like, are there tools that you are aware of or does, does I'm imagining that comes up with the folks that you're talking with as well? You know, there's no lack of, of open source tools that are popping up everywhere. I think Langchang is a, is a popular one that we see a lot of maybe early adopters using. You know, we have our own kind of first party tools and solutions. So Azure ML AI Studio is kind of our foray into that space. It tries to take a more graphical workflow project type of spin on it. Feedback from those customers that have adopted have been, have been very positive. But I think when you look at the, what I would call like the picks and shovels of AI, I think we're really in that early stage. And it's actually where we're probably seeing most of the startups come up is creating tools to make it easier the challenge, I think, Sam, to be honest, is you want to make sure that your startup isn't one feature away from being irrelevant. And so we are actually starting to see where, you know, some of the larger language models like Azure OpenAI or, Open or maybe Llama 2 or you know, Hugging Face, they could actually add a feature such as PDF input. And that is actually negating what some of the startups are doing or, or in, innovating on. So you just have to be a little bit careful. Is your tool or product a feature or is it, a, is it actually a, a product that has long-term legs? Yeah. So that's prompting. It's prompting. The other one is fine-tuning. So fine-tuning, this is always a, one of the other kind of big misconceptions that we get is, you know, you have to fine-tune. And I think where that came from is really from early adopters in this large language model space. I think that the prompt sizes were small enough that you couldn't get enough into that prompt response to be as effective as you wanted to be. But by and large, that's kind of left the, that horse has left the barn. If you look at 3.5 Turbo and 4, it's, what I'm going to say, 16,000 and 32,000 tokens, respectively. And then coming out of the uh, the OpenAI Dev Days this week, it was like 128k tokens, which is essentially I want to say it's like a 300 page book. And so you know the the ability to to just ingest large amounts of data just using prompting likely going to continue to grow. The other thing that we talk a little bit about with fine tuning or, or those folks that are interested in it, there's, there's absolutely a place for it. Um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to just lead the, the audience, but it's expensive, it's time consuming and it's resource intensive. And so, you know, you really want to work with your solution architect or your SI or your hyperscaler to really understand, you know, when is the right time to use it and not. We've got one startup that's a little bit top of mind because we just got done doing a, a briefing with and, and some work with some of my solution architects. But it's a software company that does essentially workflow. You can create flow charts or business charts or business processes. And essentially what they've done is they've taken GPT and they have taught it their proprietary language, so their domain-specific language. So what will happen is customers will feed in maybe complex descriptions of projects or, or processes, they'll actually feed it into 3.5 or 4 to get kind of that rich summary back. And then they'll feed it into a, a fine-tuned model 
that can then translate that into their own domain-specific language. So in the grand scheme of things, they basically taught GPT a language that it didn't know existed. And, and the language, that the domain-specific language, doesn't change a lot. So they're able to train it once and not have to you know, continually train and update based on, on knowledge that becomes available. It's a pretty static environment. It sounds like that's an example of both the chaining that you were talking about earlier and the fine tuning. So they use off the shelf 3.5 turbo faster, cheaper to do some manipulation to get the input text into a better format for the downstream task. And then they have this downstream task that they fine tuned that is taking that intermediate description and turning it into a workflow language, essentially. You're 100% right. It's never or very frequently is it just one way of doing things. You know, I think what we're seeing is this hybrid approach of leveraging the the power of GPT that comes out of the box, but then also bringing in maybe intellectual property or data in a in an external corpus to really take it to that next level. And, and I think that's where the the third one on the on the way we're seeing things is called retrieval augmented generation or RAG. And ultimately, and, and I'm sure I'm sure you've covered it with your with your audience in the past, but the prompt goes, looks at that external corpus of information, retrieves it, really augments the prompt, and then the generative response comes back and it's it's much more rich. It's much more specific. And we're actually seeing a lot of, of companies leverage RAG much more than, than the fine-tuning. I'll throw an example out. We've got a startup. And again, we actually had a, a really interesting open hack with them just recently. But uh, they're a sales enablement platform. Um, and they use RAG. They actually have made available all their proprietary marketing and best practices and sales data to ultimately generate customer sales collateral and they leverage retrieval augmented generation to do that. So they can continually add to that corpus of information and then not need to obviously retrain retrain uh, if they had to happen to do fine tuning. And so it's able to pull that relevant content and then feed it back. Meaning in their case, this is an internal use case as opposed to a product. They've got their sales and marketing team that has created their own collateral and they want a salesperson to say, well, I want something that talks about this product for healthcare vertical clients and it'll go and pull that information and kind of create something. Totally. So as they were developing that use case, they also came and, and found another one where as they hire new sales engineers or, or sales staff, you know, how do you effectively as their manager coach them on what a good pitch is versus not? And so what they're actually also doing is leveraging like teams meetings or, or getting the transcripts from conference calls and then feeding that transcript in and then kind of grading it or scoring it based on a matrix of what, you know, how many times they talk about business challenges? How many times did they let the customer finish before interrupting? And they're actually able to coach and guide the sales team to be much more effective earlier on in their in their career. It's really cool use cases that we're seeing kind of come out. Yeah, one of my favorite things about talking about LLM use cases is for each one you talk about, like you come up with five or 10 more that are like just beyond that, that would be really cool. Yeah, it's funny because I, I mean, I could go on all day, but one of the ones that we were able to, we had like a private preview of our Microsoft 365 Copilot. And so we had several large enterprise customers take part in that. And we, you know, really took their feedback to heart. But one of the interesting one was the, there was a senior leader at this ISV or independent software vendor that 
would use the transcript to see was her team being inclusive in their meetings. And it was a really focused on, okay, did Bob talk over everybody? Did Bob talk 80% of the time? How did Billy, did he speak up? You know, And so she was able to leverage it to really provide feedback and coaching to her team in the space of, of diversity and inclusion. And so it was a really different use case after you saw it come out. And I think every organization, as they gain access to these tools, are going to find some really interesting ways to make use of them that maybe you wouldn't initially have thought of. Right. So... Kind of talking about RAG or returning to RAG, how do you see folks evolving their RAG deployments? Like, I guess my experience with it is that conceptually it seems easy, but it it can be harder to get to the desired end product and not to overload the use of the word tuning. It takes a lot of tuning or fiddling with to get it Right. Do you see that as well? Honestly, I, I haven't. It's not not to say that it's not prevalent in the space. Part of the challenge with RAG is, you know, really vectorizing that external corpus of data. And, and I know that there's some some uh, you know third party solutions we see and use Pinecone quite a bit. Microsoft has, you know, its version of vector databases. And, and so I think that what we're probably going to see is people become more fluent and adept at kind of vectorizing their data that would ultimately kind of speed up or help improve the performance and response and effectiveness, I think, of that retrieval of that external corpus of information. But I I haven't seen it be a mass issue, at least across these startups and digital natives. And so that's kind of the things that folks are running into just trying to tailor LLM responses to their particular use case or business. Another area that from our last conversation, I, I remember we talked about was the the whole idea of incorporating LLMs into like core business systems and, and core business workflows and some challenges that you have run into there. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think when I see some of the digital natives try to weave it into their or product or service. The performance, the inference performance can cause some challenges. I think that one of the misconceptions that we run into is, oh, it's a performance issue. We just throw more hardware at it. Let's get the next big version. And it's not always the case. I think inference is, is inefficient and low latency is difficult to, to obtain. I love the, there's a statistic that I heard that one single GPT-4 prompt response, if you were just to use a, a, a single Intel processor, it could take 39 hours crunch through. And so it really tells you just the massive amount of compute and, and complexity that's happening kind of behind the curtain. And so making sure that when you're developing your app or designing how it's going to integrate into your product or services, you really need to make sure you realize that latency is never going to not be there, or at least will be there for the immediate future. There's no magic bullet, but we do find ways that the customers can kind of lean in and, and work through it or around it. Happy to talk through those as well, if that's of interest. One thing that you said uh, was interesting, you said that throwing more hardware at it wasn't always effective. Is it ever effective? Like, is that a thing that a customer can do for uh, Azure OpenAI GPT model? Is Like, is there a knob to scale the, the inference hardware? 
Yeah. So let me kind of walk through for the audience the three ways that we could speed up performance. And I think the last one is absolutely going to hit on what you, what you talked about. I think the first one and, and kind of the easiest one, in all honesty, is is picking the right model. Jury's out. I haven't seen kind of the metrics yet on what got announced at Open OpenAI Dev Day earlier this week. But prior to that, 3.5 Turbo was the fastest you were going to get. I think that when looking at 3.5, your prompt response can be anywhere from three seconds to 15. GPT-4, it's like 15 to maybe upwards of a minute, but you get much more rich content back. So figuring out how to or which model to use, I think a lot of the kind of the leading startups are actually using like a pre-processing engine to determine where to funnel their workloads. So avoid thinking everything's got to go GPT-4 because it's the biggest and baddest and actually leveraging different models and even different hosted models, right? You know, take a stab at putting it in Llama 2 or Hugging Face. You know, each model performs a little bit differently. And so really, ultimately, it's about the customer success, what model behaves best for what that specific need is. The other one is around parallelization. And so because we have like throughput management, or there's only so many tokens per minute that can be pushed through the system, and it's a lot, I mean, it's anywhere from 200 to 300,000, splitting those workloads up across regions, and then doing a bit of like post-processing at the end of the process to kind of combine the results back. We're finding a lot of startups leverage that, and it's really helped them at least maximize performance from a throughput perspective. And then the last one, again, I think and this is kind of going- before we get know, to the last yeah. one, is that something that the customer needs to do? Or like, is it 200,000 tokens per user or per account or something like that? And they need to do that on their end? Or is it a Microsoft is doing this in the back end kind of thing? Yeah, Microsoft's doing it in the back end. And then a lot of times what happens is we will essentially sitting down with your solution architect and make sure that you're right sizing your capacity. So if if you don't need 300,000 tokens per minute, we don't necessarily use it. So part of the secret to success is really sitting down with your Microsoft or your system integrator or your hyperscaler to determine what is that right bandwidth or throughput to get and then actually tailoring it. But it will go up to around 300,000 tokens per minute, which is a pretty, pretty large throughput. I mean, there are several examples of when companies are pushing that envelope, but by and large, people have been able to kind of play within that standard range. The way that we can actually better guarantee consistency and performance is through that third one, which we call provision throughput units or PTUs. It's essentially, so when you go out to your chat GPT terminal and type in and, and at prompt the system something, you're out and you're going out and hitting some public endpoint someplace and you're a little bit at the mercy of this noisy neighbor. So you might be happen to be on the same node as somebody curing cancer in a, you know, in some kind of genomic exercise. And so one way that you can ensure that you don't run into that noisy neighbor scenario is this through these PTUs. And, and essentially I like to tell the customer it's a little bit like a reserve instance where you are kind of reserving the capacity on this node just for yourself. And then you can buy certain sizes. And, you know, at this point, the costs are more than what a single query would be. But if you were to actually need to guarantee that performance or know that you're going to need to use a high throughput, it's really the best way to go. One of the things that got announced at DevDay's was this concept of you know, partial PTUs. And I think you're probably going to see some things announced at Ignite as well around maybe you don't need to have that throughput 
but you definitely need to guarantee the latency and the performance. There's the concept of partial PTUs that uh, I would say in the next couple of weeks, what we're going to learn a lot more about. So it's going to really kind of open it up for the masses in the near future. Okay. And implementation wise, is this, is it, you know, is it just kind of tweaking rate limits on the, the ingress side or you at the point where some backend team is standing up new instances of models on customer specific hardware in a region based on customer requests or contracts? So let me make sure I understood your question. So the question is, how is the backend infrastructure guaranteed to be up and going or, or meeting specific needs? Is that the question, Sam? I guess a little bit more specific to an individual customer. You've got these concepts like PTUs and you talked about the 200K, 300K, which sounds like a committed volume or something like that. And I'm envisioning that simply there's a couple of simple things that I can envision are happening. One is there's just a single pool of potential throughput and there's kind of a rate limiter that you're kind of doling out to pieces of to each customer. But it all goes into the same infrastructure, which I guess is kind of like a tenancy. Like that's like a single tenant instance of the the API, or I guess that would be like a multi-tenant instance of the API. And then I'm thinking of some other model where, you know, when you have these, that's more like tenant per customer or something like that, or multi, these things of for whatever reason, I think you can use the terms both ways. But in this case, I'm, I'm thinking of a multi-tenant kind of architecture where maybe a customer, you know, says, oh, I'm going to do, you know, 300,000 tokens, you know, they get their own little enclave of open AI, Azure stuff, Azure open AI stuff. And no one else knows theirs, like committed capacity in some way. And I'm just wondering, neither of those extremes could be actually how it works, but I'm just kind of wondering how it works on the back end to guarantee performance or to to maintain performance from one customer to the next. Yeah. And I think too, I think a lot of it is set with from the from within Microsoft Engineering. I think that they have observed that with 3.5 Turbo or 4, that rate limit of 200 to 300K is kind of that sweet spot. I think you're seeing that stance change as time goes on. I mean, just look at the, the max tokens that you could input, right? It went from 16 to 32 and now to 128. So I think the thresholds are ever changing based on what we're seeing in the reality and at the back end. I think that what we'll find is as is the infrastructure continues to mature, I think, you know, there's a big chunk of the back end systems that are run by maybe A100 GPUs from NVIDIA. Those are being moved into H100s, which, you know, there's a, a large multiplier effect on a performance perspective with the H100s. So I think you're going to continue to see that. You're also going to continue to see OpenAI and Meta and, you know, you name it, Anthropic, figure out ways to fine-tune and improve just the performance of their models. Eventually, I think you're going to you're going to get to a point where it's an almost an instantaneous response. I think we're a little further away from that, but it's probably the ultimate goal is to make it minimize the wait time for you to get a response back from the from the model. Yeah. Uh, so what I'm hearing is that, or what I'm taking from what I'm hearing is that at this point in time, you're not seeing custom infrastructure build outs for committed performance levels or SLAs. It's just kind of one big pool and Microsoft engineers are managing it as, as best as they can, as quickly as it's growing. And the key 
mechanism for doing that is kind of API rate limits and committed tokens and stuff like that that's allowing them to do performance planning and management, stuff like that on the back end. Speaking of all of all that, and also tying into the previous thing with chaining we were talking about, and you just mentioned folks were using one call to a language model to determine which language model to, to send the requests to, presumably for cost management and performance management as well. But you know, as folks are trying to pull together these applications that are now chaining together multiple invocations of LLMs and using LLMs to determine which route to go, it can become expensive. Do you get involved in helping helping folks think through cost management as well? Cost management probably is only second to the security and data privacy concerns. It can be very expensive. And if you're not prepared or or go into it with the right mindset, I think that the benefit of leveraging a kind of off-the-shelf model or, or maybe what we would consider a first-party model, such as Azure OpenAI, is you get all the, the bells and whistles of that cloud provider's cost management and monitoring services. So you can set up things like budgeting or alerting. You can integrate, maybe you are a, an organization that uses Datadog or Prometheus. You can actually export and continue to leverage those third-party tools. It creates, um, and I think you're going to see a burgeoning field in, in kind of ML ops that IT staffs or organizations are really going to have to kind of invest in to make sure that these costs don't, don't grow fast. It all comes down to, and I, and I always like try to reframe it with the customer, it's not so much cost management, it's token management, because tokens are kind of the currency that the large language models use. So how can you use as few tokens as you can to get the right response, but then also pick the right model where the token price is the lowest. And I think what you'll probably see going forward is as new models come out, you'll be able to track the the per token cost and then be able to kind of weigh the pros and cons of going with one model versus the next. One of the big pitfalls that we do see some companies jump into is they want the biggest and bettest, right? They want everything to go to GPT-4 or maybe GPT-4 Turbo, when in actuality, they could actually get by with one of the earlier models like 3.5 Turbo or even 3. The use case or the example I like to tell them is that if you had a, a specific request and that request could be serviced equally between 3.5 and 4, if you chose 4, it would cost almost 10x and it would be 5x less performant had you used 3.5. And so we have to sit down and really talk through what are you trying to accomplish with the prompt? And in some cases, 100% it makes sense to use the larger, newer model, but maybe not in every scenario. That's where that that concept of pre-processing we're seeing being used. So, you know, with basic heuristics, you're able to determine which model to leverage and, and when. But ultimately, that's the conversation that as an organization you're having with, you know, either your internal team or your partners, whether that be Microsoft or another company. It takes good architecture to really manage those costs. So leveraging the dashboards that you get from the provider, using the least expensive, smallest model possible, pre-processing if possible to determine that only the requests that need the larger models use them. We also saw Sam actually leveraging, taking a, a document or some sort of a corpus of data, summarizing it in maybe 3.5 and then feeding that summary into maybe something that's a little bit more rich and and has a lot more depth, like four. And that answer coming back is actually less expensive or uses less tokens 
than had you fed it all into to four immediately. So, you know, again, it's a little bit of a- In the context of RAG or- oh, Just in prompting, using prompts. Okay. So it's it's a little bit of an art and not necessarily the science. And that's where sometimes these kind of, either the third party or first party tools with prompt variants can kind of be worth their weight in gold, depending on what you come up with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that just art versus science kind of conveys that it's a lot of trial and error. Of course, you've got these ideas that we just talked about, but uh, a big part of it is just starting with what's easy, a big model maybe, and just trying to whittle it down where you can to try to get the cost under control. My advice in general is to leverage the kind of tried and true models where you can. And and if there's a reason why you can't, then that's where you really want to kind of start to look at prompting or RAG or, or even fine tuning. But these models that are out today are, are very mature, very powerful. I would always try to explore the most with them before you undertake creating your own or getting into the fine tuning space. It's amazing what some some accurate prompting can do when you thought maybe it was only a achievable with with fine-tuning. Got it. Awesome. Well, I alluded to this earlier. We spoke a little bit about kind of futures and how you see this all evolving. And I've got to say, you were pretty, pretty accurate based on the fact that within two weeks, half of it had uh, come to pass. What are your predictions now? I don't know. I think I need to go out and buy some lotto tickets is what I, what I think we need to do. Oh my gosh. No, I, you know, for those that weren't part of the original recording, we, we talked a little bit about not necessarily quantum step in knowledge, but it's going to be more around performance and finding ways to be more energy efficient. And we're starting to see that. I think they announced GPT-4 Turbo, again, much more performant. Actually, prices went down, which is fantastic. They included some more multimodality. So now you can can funnel in basically a picture book and allow that as input. I think, you know, again, this is, you know, again, maybe this is where that lotto ticket comes into play here. But I think that eventually we'll probably get to the point where video and like 3D models or objects could potentially be input. And then I think there were some really interesting products and platforms announced, and I'm sure there's going to be more announced at Ignite. The, you know, the GPT store was a really cool concept coming out of OpenAI and to be determined what impact or where Microsoft's going to have a part in that, but very, very cool things coming. You can really tell that the OpenAI team is super passionate about connecting with the developer community and making others successful. Awesome. Well, Jay, thanks so much for joining me once again for the conversation and to share a bit about what you have been seeing working with uh, startups, digital natives on LLM enablement. Awesome. Sam, thank you so much. It's been just an absolute pleasure and look forward to talk to you soon, hopefully. All righty. Thanks, Jay. All right. Thanks. Bye. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.